This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Matthew 5, if you haven't already found it on your device or in your, in your written Bible, your, your script Bible, uh, go ahead and find your place there in Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. You're to do what you say, in other words. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you, you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, you're not even in control of your head. Like, it's, it's owned and operated by someone else, supremely. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, comes from sin. Let's pray. Jesus, would you um, come and, and teach us this morning? Uh, Lord, would you... Um, convict of uh, hypocrisy? Would you convict of lying? Would you convict of excusing? Would you convict of being silent when the truth should have been spoken? And Lord, would you let us see you as better than anything that we would even lie about in order to look impressive? Lord, would you change each and every person that's here so that we live a little bit more like you, like citizens of your kingdom, knowing that that is where we are most satisfied and knowing that that is exactly what our city needs from us to be true, to be obedient to you, to be your hands and feet in this wonderful city. Lord, give us the instruction and the courage and the motiv- proper motivation to live as unto you this week and would today just be a shove for everyone to be shoved towards you and towards being like you with proper motivation. Lord, do these things in Christ's name. Amen. A great preacher by the name of George MacDonald wrote his son on December 6th, 1878. He said, I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many lies. We're going to pick that back up in just a minute, but I believe we can all identify with that. While we're speaking to someone, we're in a conversation, we're telling a story, and we realize, yeah, I'm embellishing this a little bit. I'm not speaking 100% complete truth about this. We know what that's like. And here Jesus is telling us how to build radical truthfulness into our lives, how to tell the truth in a truth-twisting world when our heart itself, not just the world on the outside, but even from within, we despise the truth. We don't naturally just love to go to the truth and expose it. And you know, the Old Testament here that he references, as you have heard, it's been said before in days of old, etc. You know, Jesus is referencing the teachings and the um, interpretations of the Old Testament where vows were encouraged, where, where it's, it's the, the Bible is a Bible of covenant, of promise, 
of contract. There's oaths and vows. They're assumed and encouraged. But once they're made, they can't be broken. They're not to be broken. Even this morning um, in, my, in my time in Scripture, I was reading out of 1 Kings, and there was a guy who was wanting to be a king and uh, wanted to be uh, a king under Solomon, and he, part of the agreement was that he would not cross this certain boundary, and if he would, that he would be killed. And he says, I swear the oath, I will not do this. He does it, and he willingly submits to being killed because he took an oath, and he knew he, he broke it. It was like three years later. He might have forgotten or whatever, but regardless, he offered no excuse, and he received the due penalty. In the Old Testament, these vows, these oaths were extremely important, and they were very serious. So Jesus here isn't addressing specifically a truth from the Old Testament because you can't find his quote in the Old Testament. It's not there. He's addressing a misuse and misunderstanding of the truth of oath and covenant and breaking your word and breaking promises. He's unpacking how, how people understood it in that day and era because it had fallen apart and the truth had become convoluted. It had become blurry about its teaching and people were saying it meant this when that wasn't the heart of the Old Testament in regards to oaths. So Jesus is hitting these guys, these teachers, these theologians, these pastors with something that, that they weren't expecting. Their, their biblical teaching had digressed here. And uh, most rabbis, though not all rabbis, began to teach that an oath was not binding if you did not include God or imply God a part of your oath. So if you swore by your own life, and this is what the rabbis would teach, if you swore by your own life or, or by someone else's life or by the life of the king or by some other respected object, but you didn't mention God or elude God in your oath, then you weren't bound. You didn't have to keep your word. And this is what was being taught in the synagogues. The swearing of oaths, they had digressed into this system of rules and regulations that basically would tell you when you could lie and you'd be blessed in your lying or when you actually had to tell the truth. So the fallout from this was remarkable. There was an epidemic of flippant swearing where oaths were continually mingled with everyday speech. So you'd be promising, you'd be oathing and saying, you know, by, by your life, I swear that whatever. Or on my beard, I promise you that I'm telling you to shave my beard if I'm lying. Well, that was just an easy way to lie. You didn't have to be bound to it because you didn't imply God anywhere in your oath. On the life of my camel, whatever would happen there, but you weren't bound to that, so they couldn't take the life of your camel. This integrity of our words and, and what we were speaking it, it, in this time became very trivial. It became common practice to convince other people that you were telling the truth when you were, in fact, lying when you would just simply use a different object or person to swear by. So it became a lot like the childhood game of crossing your fingers. You know, you promise something, you're like, oh, my fingers were crossed, or oh, my, my laces, my laces were crossed, or no, my legs were crossed, you just didn't notice it. Or even how people would say, man, I swear on my mother's grave, right? Or if you're very serious, and we even use this flippantly, say, no, man, I swear to God that whatever, 
And that's getting more at the heart here of what the rabbis would agree with that was dangerous. But it's amazing how flippant we are with that phrase today, just as flippant as we are with playing the crossing my fingers game. You know, today we live in a culture that is written, not an oral culture. In Jesus' day, your words were bound. They were binding, convicting, incriminating. They were serious. You were held accountable for what you said. Not just, because, you know, today we can record things like the L.A. Clippers owner, previous owner, whoops, some stuff got recorded and he's in trouble. He's bound by what his words were because they are recorded. They didn't have this ability back then. So if you were had a witness to something that you said, you could be bound by that in in the time of Christ. But today, unless it's recorded audibly and you can actually discern that that's the truth, it has to be written. It has to be signed. So... We today, we sign things uh, that are binding, like marriage license. It's still the old school signature. DMV work, as much as we love to go there, I know, we have to sign things while we're there. When you buy or lease a home, it's your signature. Whenever you give a check or a money order, it's your signature. Whenever you have a receipt, your check at the, at the restaurant, it's your signature that finalizes your transaction and where you say, no, I will pay for this. I'm good for this. So in Jesus' time, it was a little different in what was binding, but the principle stays the same. And in context here with Christ in in Matthew 5, this contract or this spoken word, this promise, this oath was an observed word. It was a witnessed word. Other people heard it and you would be held accountable for what you said. You had to be consistent with your words. You had to be true to your word and you had to receive the consequences that were coming if you broke your word. You would have to suffer even for breaking your word. So here in this passage, Jesus is saying, essentially, you've heard it said, keep the vows that you make to the Lord, but I say to you, don't swear at all. Don't swear by heaven because it's God's throne. Don't swear by earth because it's his footstool. Don't swear by Jerusalem. It's his city. Don't swear by your head. Simply let your yes be yes and let your no be no. So here Jesus gives us a very truthful look at what it means to be a person of integrity. He's critiquing the the current popular interpretation or misunderstanding as we know it today of the law that these religious teachers were saying and they were teaching and propagating. What they were saying was, you have to keep your oaths to the Lord, but if you swear by something else, you don't have to be bound by it. If you swear by heaven and earth and Jerusalem and your head or your father or your family name, and you decide to break that later on, that's totally okay, but if you break the the oath when you included the name of God, then you are going to be held responsible and you cannot do that. But Jesus says, if you swear at all, At first, it looks like he's saying, don't make public promises and don't take an oath and and never put your hand on the Bible uh, and, and, and promise anything. Don't be held accountable for anything like this. 
We know that that's not true for several reasons. First, in Matthew 26, he's standing there before the high priest, and the high priest stands before him, and he says, I charge you under oath by the living God, are you the Christ? Now, Jesus had been silent up until this point, but whenever he was under oath before the high priest, he says, yes, I am, it is as you say. And then also in uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and Galatians 1, the apostle Paul takes an oath. He says, by the living God, I tell you this. He's writing out his oath in those letters. And then even if you go back to Genesis 15, God makes an oath to Abraham where he says, I hold myself accountable to you that I will keep this promise. The entire Bible is full of covenants, of public promises, observed words, and accountability. So what does Jesus mean here? He can't mean that you don't make oaths, but what he does mean is actually the opposite. He's saying, if you think, if you think that you can separate and create different levels of truthfulness, you're wrong. In other words, there's no lie and then black lie, but then there's this like white lie over here that's just, it's, it's innocent. It's, it's to keep peace. It's a lie. Jesus says these things are wrong. There is no big lie or little lie. If you think I have to be truthful when I use this phrase, but not when I use this phrase, then you're misinformed. And it's as if Jesus says, friends, don't you realize that the heavens are God's and he's present there? Don't you realize that this earth is his and he's present? The city is his and he's present, that he's the creator of your life, the, the creator of your head, the one that causes hair to grow and change colors? Like, don't you realize that he's in control and that he's present and that he's real and that he's near and you can't escape his presence and say, oh, well, he's not here so I can say whatever I want to say. He's saying, no, you're wrong. Every word is heard. Everything is observed. He's essentially saying, Speak and talk, communicate with others in such a way that it is as if you are under oath, your hand being sworn on the Bible with everything that you say. Be that full of integrity. Be that full of truth. So it's like you're on your own uh, Truman Show. It's like, we follow, let's say tomorrow, we follow you everywhere, just like that movie. Every interaction, every tone of the voice, every, the, the way that you handle your eyes and, and as you speak, your body language, your posture, how you react to certain things, the stories that you tell. When you go back to high school and that six inch fish becomes a six foot shark that you caught at the beach and, and you just begin to embellish all these things. Would you act differently tomorrow if you knew that everyone would be watching a live show of your life on the internet, live streaming, on television, being produced live? Would you act any different on Tuesday when they weren't around than you would on Monday when everything, you were going to be held accountable for everything, every political view that you mentioned, everything you said about race, everything you said about your mother-in-law, everything. Would you act differently? I think we would. I think every one of us would. We would feel like we are under the microscope. And what Jesus is saying here is that that is how things are. God is aware of everything. Like the psalmist said, there's no place I can go where God isn't. 
And he looks upon the heart, not even on the words, but the heart behind the words and the things that we don't say that we're thinking. Like, man, it goes a whole lot deeper in a hurry when you think about how observed we truly are. It's scary. Jesus is saying that our condition is serious. And it's like he wants us to understand our true condition. That it's not just when we have an official oath using the name God, but it's in every little thing that we say, every word that is spoken. Here Jesus Christ calls us the citizens of his new kingdom that he's inaugurating with his presence and with his saving work. He's calling us to a life of profound truthfulness. And one of our problems, among others, is that we live in such a truth-twisting culture that our world today is radically deceptive at its very core, at its very root. We're bombarded by a sea of media deception. Hyperbole and exaggeration, they flow through advertising, they they flow through political campaigning. It's like if you drink this beer, you're gonna get these women. It just happens. Like your, your dry pool becomes nice water and there's pool furniture all the way around. There's no weeds and everything looks great. There's flowers and there's beautiful people everywhere. Or if you, if you drive this car, all these people are going to want to get your picture when you stumble across a piece of red carpet. Or if you dress like this, you're going to get the attention of these guys. There are empty promises everywhere. There's tax fraud everywhere. There's embellished product advertising everywhere. It takes like these, these as seen on TV things. If, if everything that we saw as seen on TV actually worked the way it worked as it does on TV in my own house, man, America will be so different. Most guarantees don't actually guarantee that lifetime warranty. It's not really a lifetime warranty. The workout videos, 20 minutes a day, when you know that the people who are on the commercials aren't the ones who use that product to get to look that way. You know that. And we still order them. When you, when you see clips on Vimeo or YouTube, it's like you just begin to question, ah, nah, it's got to be edited. This week I watched a baseball. You might have seen it. It's been floating around the last few days. But it's this guy who hits a baseball into like a, a, a screen, like, the, like a trampoline, a vertical trampoline type of thing, and it bounces back. He hits it to shortstop, and it bounces to first. It bounces to third. It bounces to second, and it comes back to him. And what does he do? Anybody seen this? No? Uh, I like baseball. Okay, so he ends up, it, it comes right back at him, and he hits it into the screen at shortstop again, and it goes to first, it goes to third, it goes to second, it comes back to him. He does this for a few times, just swinging away. It's working its way around the diamond. That's the ball field, and he just keeps going. And then he's like, he looks at his friend, and he says, all right, give me another ball. So he gets another one. Boom. And now there's two going. And it's like, man, there's no way. And I'm I'm actually in a discussion on Facebook over whether this is true or not, because I just doubt that it's true, right? And I remember back in the late 90s when Tiger Woods had this ad where he was bouncing a golf ball on a golf club, right? 
And he's just bouncing, 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 and then he hits it a little bit higher, and then he drives it, which he really can do that, but I didn't believe it, partly because I couldn't do it, secondly, because I've never seen it done, right? But what this has done to us is that it produces hoax websites where we have to go investigate whether that really happened, whether that story is true. We have been produced to be a culture of skeptics. Where if there is something that seems so radically wonderful that it can't be true. Because we've been lied to time and time again and we find it difficult to speak truth because our culture, it's like this a part of what we are. We just breathe it in, breathe it out. This deception, we feel like it's okay to embellish because all these other advertisements and these videos and all these other people that we're around seem to embellish. So it's okay. We sound so much better if we can embellish the truth. And we even call it embellishing the truth. We don't call it lying, right? We sound so much better if we just lie about stuff. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Let me read the George MacDonald quote that he wrote to his son. This is it in full, this little paragraph here. I always try, I think I do, to be truthful. All the same, I tell a great many petty lies. For instance, things that mean one thing to myself, though another to other people. But I do not think lightly of it. Where I am more often wrong is in carefully pretending to hear things which I do not, especially jokes and good stories, the point of which I always miss. But seeing everyone laugh, I laugh too for the sake of not looking a fool this last sentence, my respect for the world's opinion is my greatest stumbling block, I fear. You see, he's beginning to look through the eyes of the creator, the eyes of the one who sees everything, and he's becoming convicted by it. He's like, man, God even sees these types of issues in my soul. It's not easy to be a totally truthful person in today's culture, but it's necessary for Christians to be people who are of integrity and who speak the truth. The world that we live in longs for freedom from dishonesty. Sure, our culture seems to cultivate deception and, and promote it, but deep down, deep down in our culture, deep down in the people who do not believe Jesus in our city, there is a longing to escape the show, to escape pretense, and to seek what is true. Many look at the church who profess truth, and they look in, and when they see a lack of integrity that they had a hope for, they scream hypocrisy and they lose even a little bit more hope that there is something that's real and authentic out there. Our integrity as followers of Christ make all the difference in the world that we live in today. When people know that you seek to tell the truth and, and to not lie, your testimony will have much more effect than just throwing theology at them. But when you live out a changed life, seeking to have truth at your very core, that makes a difference in what people think of the Jesus that you talk about. This radical truthfulness is greatly needed in the church today, in the Axis church today. 
You see an act of deceit done against, against somebody in this room, a part of the body of Christ at the Access Church is, is an act of deceit against the entire church because we are one body. We are brothers and sisters in one body here. It affects others. And the Lord Jesus, he prayed. He prayed for unity. He prayed that his body, his church would be unified. But a body that is not truthful is a body filled with distrust and therefore not unified. When lying and dishonesty and embellishing of the truth becomes the norm or culturally acceptable into our church here, each and every person that makes up our church family learns to not fully, completely trust and submit yourself to the vulnerability of of being in true community. So it's very important that we use our words carefully and that we, we seek to live lives of integrity for the sake of who we are as a body here at the Axis Church. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We need a truthful spirit that produces an an increasing accuracy and reliability and truthfulness of our words. And we also need to remember that the Lord hears. It's uh, Matthew 12, 36. The Lord hears... He sees not just the oaths, everything. And we will stand before him and give account of this. And we should take these things seriously. Jesus wastes no words with his friends here in this culture in Matthew 5, nor to us today, where he says, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. You shouldn't have to say, I, I, no, I promise, I, I promise I'm telling the truth. Trying harder at this, it's not, it's not going to work. It's not going to last. Having a rubber band, this is one thing I used to do when I was growing up, is I would have a, a rubber band that I would put around my wrist, and every time I did something stupid, like a lie, I, in order to produce righteousness in me, I would pop the rubber band, like just a good old-fashioned Southern Pharisee, you know, as if that was going to produce behavior change or, or true heart change, rather. We need something more than this. Of course, we need to work hard at telling the truth, but we need more than that. What we need in addition to working hard at being honest men and women is that we understand the gospel in regards to our honesty and to our desire to lie. What does the gospel say about these things? The gospel and the spirit of God working in our hearts can produce men and women of integrity, even today, even in this culture that we live in. Jesus is concerned that the men and women and the boys and girls who would make up his kingdom tell the truth and become people of integrity. And this integrity, it literally at its very root means simple, not complex. It means simple or one message, one unit. Not complex, not duplex, if you will, but simple. A person of integrity is someone who doesn't say one thing and do another. When you say, I'm going to call you this week, you do it because you're a person of integrity. When you say, I'll be faithful to you, you are faithful because you're a person of integrity. A person of integrity doesn't say one thing and think another. I'd love to, but I'll be out of town that day. 
when honestly, you just don't want to go. I don't think your writing is quite what we're looking for when you just think it's trash. Saying one thing and thinking another. Saying one thing and doing another. It's a lack of simplicity. You're into pieces. You're not of one single piece. You're complex, you're complicated, you're convoluted, but a person of integrity is someone who is simple, where there's one story that isn't different in different scenarios. It's the same thing everywhere. It's simple. It's something of integrity. A person of integrity doesn't say one thing here and then another thing there. Do we say, oh, everything's fine on the outside, but on the inside? with people that we live with, they know our world is upside down and it's chaos, that there's nothing right. Do you say one thing one place and another thing another place? Jesus is saying that there has to be simplicity about ourselves. One common story, the same story in any situation. What you say, who you are, what you do when people are looking is the exact same person and story you get when no one's around or regardless of who is around. This is the whole point of what Jesus is saying here about oaths. We look at oaths and we're like, ah, how's that relevant? It's very relevant for us today. Every yes, every no is witnessed. It's observed, which means... You shouldn't be one way when people are looking and another way when people aren't looking. That's how you know that you're an honest person. This is what Jesus is saying must be identifying factors into who we are. Tom Watson at his very first state golf tournament, he's a golfer, great golfer. One of the things that he did is uh, it was on a putting green and he, he addresses the ball. And when he does, the ball moves just, I mean, the slightest little bit, and he, he looks around and, and notices, he comes back, he notices no one saw him, so he could have just gone right back, but instead, he, this is true, he goes to the judge and says, I have to be Dr. Score, I have to be Dr. Stroke, because my ball moved. No one saw the ball move. I saw the ball move. They docked him a stroke, he lost the hole. Integrity. When no one else notices, do we still do the right thing and say the truth? When no one is looking, who are you? What are you? Are you different than when everybody is looking? And what Jesus is saying is every yes and every no is witnessed and must be full of honesty and truthfulness. So are we, are you a man of integrity, a woman of integrity? If there's anybody here who says, man, this Christianity, ooh, this is tough. I can never be that honest. You haven't gotten the true point. You've missed the point of the gospel. And it's, here's the point of the gospel. It's, it's, uh, I'm going to use a story of, of what Jesus did. Jesus told a story to the Pharisees. They were the legalistic leaders, the, the, the theologians of the day, the pastors. And they didn't really get grace. They didn't understand that they were saved because of what Jesus was doing for them. They thought that they just had to be religious and that they could be good enough, that they could be moral enough, that they could be honest enough to be saved. So Jesus tells them a parable. He says, a man talked to two other men and said, go out in that field and work for me. The first man said, I will. He never showed up. 
The second one said, I will, and he left. But then he came back and he repented and he went to go work. And Jesus asked the Pharisees, which one was obedient to his father? The Pharisees said, the second one. And Jesus said, right. That's why the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you will. What was Jesus saying? He's saying it's not your record, but your willingness to repent that makes a difference. In other words, here's how it attaches to honesty. The only honesty I really need to save you is your willingness to be honest about your dishonesty. The only honesty that you really have to have for me to save you is to be honest that you're dishonest. The only dishonesty that will damn you is your unwillingness to be honest that you're dishonest. What you really need today, what we need today in order for Jesus to come into our life and to save us and to change us and to make us men and women of integrity is for us to admit, I am dishonest. And I lie a lot. And I want people to be impressed with me all the time. Every time I tell a story, I want people to be impressed. I want to be popular. I want to matter. So yes, I lie. Being bold enough and open enough to be able to say these things. Honesty starts right here. We must admit that we're dishonest, that we don't always like the truth, that we'd rather run from reality and run from the light than than run towards it. We must admit that we lie, and that's the one honesty that you have to give Jesus. It's not that you have to be someone who has a perfect record or that you have to be totally honest all the time. I know no one can keep up with that. And if that's where you're landing, you're missing the point. You're actually halfway there. You're more than halfway there if that's what you think. You're willing you can, that you admit to do this, that, that you can't. And you're willing to say that you haven't done this. And then go the rest of the way and say, Jesus, come and be my Savior. Make me a person of integrity so that my yes will really be yes and that my no will really be no. Come and change me. Allow me to know who I really am in you so that I can be honest with everybody around my life. So essentially, we're coming down to these two. We've landed here. I want to leave us with two truths to set us free from having to lie. Two truths to get us out of this rat race of trying to remember our stories. Because that's what you, if you're a liar, you have to have a great memory. You have to remember exactly how you said it before, especially if that person overheard you say it. It's so heavy. So here's two truths to set us free from having to lie. One, we are fully approved and accepted by God because of Jesus. Getting at this, why do we lie? Why do we withhold truth? Why, why do we exaggerate? Why do we embellish? Why do we overpromise to impress? All these things, that's just the fruit. There's a deeper issue. There's a root that goes much further, an issue within the heart. 
Why do we resort to these methods of engagement with others? It's because we fear that we aren't good enough if we merely speak the truth, that the truth isn't that impressive. And if we're completely honest, no one's going to think much of us. We are fully approved and accepted by God. You do not have to seek the approval of others to find your value and your worth. Jesus earned the favor of God towards you so that you no longer have to be in this race to keep others impressed with who you are. There's nothing you can do to disappoint God. There's nothing you can do to impress God. It's already been earned perfectly for you by Jesus Christ. There's never anything that you're ever going to be able to do as a Christian where God is ever going to wipe the smile off his face towards you. Never. You've been fully approved and accepted. The extent of the saving work of Christ is radical. We we resort this sort of engagement of lying to impress because we fear that others will reject us if we are completely honest. To use George MacDonald again, our respect for the world's opinions is our greatest stumbling block. Essentially, we care too much about what they think as if our worth and our value comes from what they think and not from what God knows that we are. Well, well, they might think that, if I tell the truth, they might, but what does God not might say or might think? What does God say of you? Because of Christ, he looks at us and he says, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased, and they can't mess it up. That's what he says. That's what is finished. Essentially, we do care too much about what other people think, and that's why we have to lie. It's as if their worth and value does come from what they think of us. But the gospel speaks into our worth and our value and identity. Do we find our our value and identity in, in being approved by others or accepted by others? We often do, but we don't have to. Do we find it in being good enough and never, ever lying? No, because then we'll have to change what a lie is in order to fit the perfection requirement, which is no perfection requirement at all. We must find our worth and identity in Christ. His opinion matters of us much more than the opinions of other people. It is absolutely better to trust in the Lord and hope in God rather than in men or women and seeking their approval. May we live from being approved by God rather than living every day seeking approval from others. That is such a weary road. And there is no happy ending to that. Because even if you get that approval, it's not what you're looking for. It can't satisfy Secondly, two truths to set us free from having a lie. Knowing, one, that we are fully approved and accepted by God. Two, we can repent and forgive when we're lied to and when we lie. We can repent and forgive when we are lied to and when we lie because of Jesus. Unfortunately, we're going to lie. This isn't June 1st, 2014. It's not the last time someone within the Axis Church family who's present here today is going to lie. We're going to lie. We're going to disappoint each other. If you're looking for a perfect church, 
where no one ever lies to anybody. It's, it's one, it doesn't exist. Two, you're lying to yourself and thinking that it does exist. But know that we're seeking here to live this type of life and that we have an answer. We have, uh, we have forgiveness and we have repentance here. You see, Jesus lived a life for us. That means that his integrity is our integrity. He took the penalty for our lack of integrity, for our dishonesty and our lying. He took the punishment upon himself. So now we are free to seek forgiveness with one another because we have been forgiven perfectly by God because of Christ's work for us on the cross. Practically, I'll end with this story here. Practically, this is what it looks like. A friend of mine, Pastor Ray Ortland of Emanuel Church over off of Charlotte, we were traveling down to Alabama together for some church planting stuff and he, uh, we, were, we were talking about something pastoral, and I shared my opinion. And um, yeah, this was years ago when whew, I had a whole lot more opinions than I do now. I'm still loaded with them, but not like I was, especially around really smart people like Ray. I kind of hold back now. I've learned not to be a dummy. Um, it's better to be silent, right, than to prove that you're an idiot. Um, so he asked my opinion on something pastoral, and I, man, I gave him just this awesome answer. I'm sure it was awesome. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it had to be impressive. And uh, he got real quiet, which isn't unusual for Ray after I say something so intelligent. And uh, <clears throat> of course I'm joking. But he, uh, we continue to talk through this and it's probably about four or five hours later, I get this phone call from Ray. This is after we had, you know, I've gotten my car there in Franklin and drove up to the city. And uh, he said, Jeremy, I need to apologize to you. Okay, what happened? He's like, when we were in the car and we were talking through that particular issue and, and you said this, he's like, what you said wasn't wrong. It was, it, was, it, was, it was right. But I assumed something about what you meant that you didn't say, and I don't think you meant. And I'm, I'm sorry, and, I, and I'm asking you to forgive me for my faults towards you. I'm sorry, that was wrong. I was like... Yeah, totally. Like, I, I would nev have never known what you thought about me. So thanks. Like, that was it. Love you, Jeremy. Bye. See you, Ray. Love you. But what's at the point there is Ray was living a free life where he can speak the truth. And he can be honest even about his thoughts towards somebody and seek repentance and forgiveness instead of letting that assumption work in his heart to where it produces bitterness and separation from me because after all, I, I said that, which I never said it, he just assumed it, but it begins to fester into something that I did say, actually that I swore under oath, I signed it and all this, and he begins to separate himself from me because of something that wasn't even true. But if you walk in the light... And you speak these things that are true. First John 1, we have fellowship together. We can forgive one another as Christ Jesus, as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. This is what it looks like to live from a heart that is being satisfied by the living water and not just seeking to find water just everywhere in someone's approval or what they think of you or you can't say this because what they're going to think. He says, no, I thought this and, and I'm wrong for thinking that. I don't want to think that. Will you forgive me for this thought I had? Wow, what a culture that that creates. Daddies, that needs to be 
That culture needs to be created in our homes, and we're to lead by example in that. Men and women, roommates, wives, mommies, husbands, sons, daughters, friends, we need to live this type of lifestyle. And when we do, don't you think I can tell Ray anything? Like after something like that, I I feel like I can be honest with him, right? That's what that does is it creates this culture. That's what we need. That is so freeing. It's being in a conversation and saying a story and moving on from it. And you're just eaten up with the conviction and work of the Holy Spirit. And you say, guys, stop. You know that story I just told you about a while ago? That was a lie. And I said it to impress you guys. And I'm just so, I I hate my sin. I'm sorry. I don't know. I mean, I love you guys. I don't need your approval. I know you guys love me. I'm approved in Christ. I don't have to lie about that. That, that is the type of conversation that we need to be having. Those types of conversations. It is the finished, completed work of Christ that makes these things possible. Where our theology isn't just something on paper that we can recite, but where it actually informs our heart and transforms our lives. Not, it's not just information up here, but it actually moves us and it changes us and it affects others around us. That's when theology has done its true work. That's when Bible study is doing its true intended work, is when it produces healthy change in us and in the people around us. This is my prayer. The finished work of Jesus Christ matters. It must be preached and it must be celebrated. It must be remembered. This is why we take communion every single week, is it forces us to the table where we remember what Jesus has done for us. We remember his, his body that he gave up for us as a sacrifice, the blood that was shed for us, that atoned for our sins. He bore the wrath for us. He beat death for us. We remember because that makes all the difference, not the rubber band tactics of trying to be better, but seeing that he was perfect for us. Magnificent truth. Let me pray for us as we, as we go into communion now. We have bread and, and, and wine or juice, and you just take it and dip it in one, uh, and then our servers can come. But just work through these things. Pray through these things now during this time. Don't just hop up to communion. Do it if you feel led. But work through these things. Pray. Talk to those around you in these areas where you struggle. Or or maybe it's time for you to confess some things where you've lied or embellished. Use this opportunity before communion and as we move into communion to respond. Let your heart work in these truths. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for the life that you did live for us. Thank you, Lord, for the example that you gave to us. Lord, thank you for doing the work needed so that we can be saved and we can be set free, that we don't have to seek to impress because you did the work that was needed for us to be fully accepted by the one who matters most. Lord, would we work each day from the opinion of God towards us, and not for other people to have a particular high view of who we are. God, help us. Lord, as we move into this time of remembering you, would you allow us to do that? Would it not be about other things, but would this time be about truly remembering your work in life and death and resurrection and ascension and return? Lord, we want to be a thankful church 
for what you've done for us. We want to take this time to repent, to confess, and to worship you for what you've done. We absolutely do not want to forget you or assume you. Lord, you've saved us. You're saving people. You're saving people even in this room right now. I know that you are. You're changing hearts even right now. Lord, you're so good to us. Lord, do these saving things. Work in us for your glory and our true satisfaction. In Christ's name, amen.